Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I mean, no one plans to get sick, and yet... Here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. A quarter century ago, I was given six months to live with a diagnosis of terminal brain cancer. For more than 15 years, I've been ranting and raving on the air about stupid cancer and now stupid healthcare, and I'm just getting warmed up. So let's all go make healthcare suck less together because you know what? We're all out of patience. Hey, that's the name of the show. Hello, friends. Welcome back to Out of Patience. Got a great show for you today. Serene Noor Ali is the co-founder of Sleuth, which is a childhood health recommendation engine powered by crowdsourced insights and machine learning. Lots of syllables there, I know, but they do great work by essentially matching parents with other parents who have like-minded issues as caregivers to children with challenges. Who doesn't need more of that? She's also a U.S. diplomat to the Department of State's Fund for Innovation. One of the more fascinating things we talk about is the world outside your bubble. Well, it certainly brings a perspective and a level of emotional intelligence to the conversation that you may not have had otherwise. She has this intoxicating intellect, an enviable level of wisdom, and a perspective you just have to hear. I present to you Serene Noor Ali. Serene, welcome to Out of Patience. Thank you. It's good to see you. And I mean, see you, you're here. I'm actually here in the flesh. You've been surprised. Like I've had people come in and say, I haven't seen another human being in 18 months and they're coming on the show. I know. It does feel kind of weird. It feels fantastic, though, yeah. to just be the guy. They chose to come here. They trust me. Totally. Yeah. It's a lot of pressure on you, though. I mean, as of this taping, I am now uh, Omicron free. There you go. This is the first show I think I've taped since I had to deal with having had Omicron. Uh, this show is going to probably air in March or April. We're taping this at the end of January. I had it, and it was like a cold. Wasn't that like bad for me? I should get a sticker that says I had it. I suckers. had it. Thank you so much for reaching out. And epic props to Effie Parks, yes. who's also on my show, for introducing us. I am just fascinated by your backstory, but we were talking I'm just, I have so many questions for you. You're an astonishingly well-accomplished global citizen. I'll start with oh, that. Oh, that's so nice of you. I am hope what's on paper meets the reality. Yeah. <laughs> I'm holding you accountable. I got I know. check boxes no here. Yes, exactly. But I think what really sets a lot of people apart that we tend to lose sight of is having a sense of that there's a world outside America. Yeah. Talk about that. I grew up with it. My dad worked in international development. And uh, I used to tell my mom that I think I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I used to tell my mom that if we charged $1 for every person that came home for dinner, we would have been millionaires by the end of my childhood. <laughs> because we were fortunate to have so many different types of people come over. And it was like literally every week. It wasn't like a, like dinner parties for 50 people every week. 
I know how to host with my eyes closed. I remember when I was in college and my roommate, we were talking about dinner parties and she's like, oh, my parents are having a dinner party. And I was like, oh, that's nice. And she mentioned that four people are coming over. I was like, you can't call it a dinner party if four people come over. I was like, our dinner parties are like a hundred. Yeah, that doesn't qualify. (laughs) Wait, did they get so professionally intuitive at dinner parties where you didn't need measuring cups? No, my mom never cooked with measuring cups. Right. that That's a real sign. My friend growing up, Italian family on Staten Island, no measuring cups. Yeah. Old school, like Napolitan from Italy. Like they just knew like, oh, it's this much sauce, this much tomatoes, this much. <laughs> Who needs measuring cups? It's amazing. And you know it's going to turn out fine. It's going to be great every time. Yeah. It's such an intuitive way to think about just being the family. Yeah. I think I grew up with a sense of people and community. Right. I think that is defined so much of everything that I do. And fortunately, the people that we did have in community came from so many different parts of the world. So that when I graduated college, I knew I wanted to work internationally. In fact, this is the part of my career that is the most uninternational. What part? Being on the show right now? My listenership is like 95% American. I only know New York citizens. No, I'm joking. No, I'm, I'm working on a startup that's focused on the U.S., when I thought I was going to have a career internationally. And I and I love it. It's just I never would have predicted it. You're betraying the United Nations, you know. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> I prefer the bureaucracy of creating a tech startup over the bureaucracy of the United Nations. I'm going to agree with that one. Yeah. For sure. So your upbringing, I want to go back to that. Like to know that there's a world inside America, to know that there are other countries that different cultures are that different. Right. To get an appreciation for that. Right. I mean, I think the fact that I do come from an immigrant family also lent itself to my worldview. And I look very brown. I'm South Asian. But I also happen to have parents that are from two totally different countries, right? So like my mom is from a South Asian diaspora, but she grew up in Tanzania. That doesn't make a lot of sense to people when I explain it to them. Because people look like, oh, you look Indian, you look Pakistani. And my dad um, was Pakistani. So that's like a surface level thing you understand. But when you're one generation removed from the country of heritage that people attribute to, it's very different. It's just like if you compared me to someone that grew up in India or Pakistan, we're different because you're formed by the country you live in. So my mom's family was formed by living in Tanzania and East Africa for multiple generations. And so there was constant negotiation of cultures in my house. So I want to do a comparative analysis on like my fourth generation of hyper Jewish people from Eastern Europe where you were set up for marriage. You had to do these things. You did what your father's job was. Right. But all guilt and food kind of ran the culture. <laughs> is there similarities there? <laughs> I've always said that Pakistani culture and Jewish culture is very similar. Yeah. My friend Ritesh Patel was on the show. He's an Indian American. And we just jived over the fact that like, this is how we do it. Because you do it and you do it because we do it. There's nothing different. Yeah. Yeah, completely. And there's bigger weddings, perhaps. Bigger weddings. Oh, yeah, we have huge weddings. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think if you grow up with a mix of cultures around you, because I grew up outside of DC, and DC is the diplomatic headquarters of the US. And my dad was in those circles. And so it was what I always wanted to be part of. I was reading that you are a diplomat. Is that true? Do you carry the badge of I'm a diplomat? That's a good question. So I did have a diplomatic passport, which I used because I did have overseas assignments. I worked at the State Department as um, a public servant who then got to work overseas, which gave me the diplomatic passport. So I wasn't part of the Foreign Service, but I got to be considered a diplomat when I traveled, which was 
honestly awesome because I got to skip all the airport lines. That's the best. It was really the best part. (laughs) Did you ever claim immunity over a crime you didn't mean to commit? Of course I did. Yes, of course. This is the first time I publicly. We're just going to channel Lethal Weapon 2's final scenes. Yeah, exactly. You got my secret. We got to find a clip of uh, diplomatic immunity. (laughs) So great. But I had to tell you something funny about that. When I worked in Nepal, people couldn't get over the fact that I was brown and had a diplomatic, a U.S. diplomatic passport because they looked at me as the same skin color as them. Right, right, right. And there was such a nuance there of like what people think a U.S. diplomat looks like. That's incredible. I would not have thought about that. Yeah. No, and it happens a lot to a lot of there are diplomats who are, you know, people of color that when they travel to other countries, people are like, wait a minute. So it says here that you were working for the State Department, as you indicated, for something called the Fund for Innovation. Yeah. And that brought you to Nepal. Yeah, that's one of the things that brought me. I think I did that after I got to Nepal. I mean, Nepal was I was back filling some public diplomacy positions. Um, but the Fund for Innovation was started after President Obama came into the office because he brought in the sense of change. And so what we wanted to do was give money to embassies who wanted to go from change from the bottom up instead of from Washington telling them what to do. What a novel idea. I know, right? I assume it worked while it worked, right? It did. I think it was very well received, yeah. So in stalking you and prep for this <laughs> epic yeah. in-person meeting, one of the little quips that showed up about something someone said of you that was very nice was that you have high organizational EQ. I've not heard those words in succession before. <laughs> I kind of think I know what it means, but you know, e- EQ is also another fascinating thing that we've kind of gotten woke to in the last, oh, yeah. it's not just IQ, it's EQ. Yeah. Now there's like something like SQ, like your spiritual. No, there yeah. is not. Yeah, I know. No. I think a little part of me died. I mean, you could probably put any letter before the word Q and decide it's something that it is or isn't. And then just brand market. And just, that's it, go whole hog with a startup on it. Yeah, I'm sure we'll see that as long as it's in the metaverse. (laughs) Dear Mark Zuckerberg, we're all doomed. (laughs) The robot apocalypse is upon us. So how do you define EQ? I do define it as emotional intelligence. I think it's accurate to say that's one of the things that I do well. And... I am appreciative that as time passes, people value people who can understand what's going on around them, the dynamics that human interaction lends to. And I'll say that for what I'm doing now, that has helped me connect with people in my space who are caregivers. That makes a lot of sense. I want to get to that in the second half of the show because that's kind of how we were introduced. Yeah. This Twitter healthcare universe of sorts. I also read you speak five languages. That probably ties into the EQ stuff, right? Yeah, I just love people and where they're from. Can I guess what they're not? Yes. All right, it's not Icelandic. <laughs> it's not Chilean. It's You're Chilean not a, a language. Uh, it's Spanish, right? <laughs> but there's probably some kind of like local dialect. Right? Sure, let's go with that, yeah. Uh, it's not Inuit. I was born in Canada, though. Samoan? You don't speak Samoan? No. Mauritania? You probably don't speak Mauritania. No. All right, all right those are the five that you don't speak. Yeah, that's true. Besides English. Besides English. Well. Farsi, right? I know Farsi's uh, yeah, one. Yeah. yeah. Arabic, Urdu, slash Hindi. They're mm-hmm. very similar. And French. Fully fluent or just? No, I've studied all of them. And because I'm not in practice, I lost a lot of it, unfortunately. If you don't use it, you lose it. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> I'd like to think that if I were dropped in a country that spoke one of those languages, it would come back to me. But, you know, the likelihood of me going to like Iran or Afghanistan at this point in my life for a long 
periods of time is probably pretty low. I mean, it informs you as a global citizen how to do business differently, how to appreciate yeah. communication differently, how to negotiate differently. You've done all this. Yeah, I think that is the very transferable skill to what I'm doing now. I mean, I can see, for example, that I can relate to a lot of different types of people. Like I can relate to different types of backgrounds and cultures. And I think it just gives you a set of questions to ask and not assume that you understand what the background is. It makes you actually realize that everyone comes to something with something unique and different and they want to tell their own story. Do you have any success stories or nightmare stories about working with a higher EQ and perhaps interacting with people who don't have that? I mean, I live in New York. Isn't that like everything? Ah, yes, the cabbies. <laughs> no, I'm going to go on a little defending New York for no, a moment. No, I love New York too. That yes. no one wants to pay you any mind or make eye contact. But if you fall, we'll come get you. We'll help you up. I if agree. you nearly get hit by a cab, we'll, we'll go beat the shit out of the cab driver. Yeah. Like we will defend you to I the agree. end of days if something bad happens to you in front of us. Yeah, and I will defend New York with you. I think that... The relationships that you develop in New York are actually very genuine. You know, like you and I will probably find a way to like help each other in our business. And so people would say, oh, that's transactional. And I was like, no, that's actually authentic because you and I are both saying that our business is important to us and we respect each other. And I think that New York gets a bad rap for that. It also goes into the whole like do well and do good at the yeah. same time. Yeah. That's a very entrepreneurial but socially prudent way to think about like justice and impact and I revenue agree. it's a good use of capitalism from a philosophical perspective yeah totally i agree with you right me versus we me versus we yeah we're both in the we business we are in the we business well we're going to get to that right after the break sounds good man that sunset is gorgeous Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind. With Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I want to start by how I lead the show intro, which is that no one asked to get sick, but here we are. 
and no one wakes up one day. I can't wait to be fucked up by the healthcare system <laughs> and deal <laughs> no. with caregiving and all this crap. Did you have any sort of like just mic drop moment where like, fuck, I'm here now? That is a great question. You know, yes. And I thought it was when my daughter was 18 months and we knew something was going on. But actually, it happened this past summer when we got much worse news. And that was a huge shock that like, oh, yeah, we've arrived. And I think the reason it happened this time so much more was because we were hospitalized for so long. And once you start living in the hospital system, you see things that you can't unsee. Yeah. I mean, the metaphor I always use, no matter where I go, no matter who I talk to, is that healthcare, not sick care, healthcare is kind of like a store you never expected to have to shop in. So there's no pre-research you do in right. anticipation of going into the store. Yeah, that's And true. once you're there, there's no greeter. You don't know what's on any aisle. You don't know what the price is of anything on any aisle. And you don't know if someone's going to pay for the thing that has no price on any aisle. Right. I have friends that work for major insurance companies who basically build the rules with the actuarial tables and the cost yeah. benefit analysis and their kid gets sick or they get sick and they're like, this system is fucked up. I'm like you built the system. Yeah. No one escapes unscathed. It's so interesting because I had a conversation with a doctor yesterday who's a pediatrician who said the same thing about their child. Mm -hmm. And I hear that and I'm sure you hear that all the time. It's like when a doctor's family member gets ill, that's when they realize how deeply broken it is. It's really easy to say if only people understood what I was going through. But is that really fair? Because we don't want them to know what we're going through. Yeah. We'd prefer that they don't know what we're going Agreed. through. Agreed. Which I think has informed both of our businesses. Completely informed. <laughs> I want to talk about that. You are the co-founder of Sleuth. Talk more about that. Yeah. Sleuth is directly inspired by what we went through with my daughter, which is it was difficult to get answers. And I had to leave my job to get answers about how to get her what she needed. And so Sleuth is a parent-powered platform and GPS for children's health. And we crowdsource a parent's journey and we make that data and insight available to parents of similar children because we believe en masse caregiver expertise is highly accurate and helpful to people who are newer to the same journey. I'd love to know if like at perhaps a certain sense of scale where the patterns lie in common threads across yeah. disease states, ethnic backgrounds, socioeconomic determinants, location, zip codes. Yeah, it's a great question. I fortunately have a co-founder, Alex Leeds, who's a data scientist. And we're about to embark on the next phase of Sleuth, which is a research project across multiple children's conditions. We only need 100 of a certain type of condition to see the strong patterns. That's a base sample size? Yeah. 100? It's not a lot. Wow. It's incredible. It's incredible how the data science works in this. It makes sense, I'm sure, with your own medical journey, right? If you met 100 or 99 different people that had a similar kind of symptom set as you and diagnostic think that's actually enough to see really powerful patterns. Reminds me of my agency days when, uh, this is a true story, Pepsi was not my client, but I heard stories that when they launched, was it Crystal Pepsi? Remember Clear Pepsi? Oh, I Pepsi? remember that. They determined, I mean, huge market mistake by Pepsi, but apparently they made the decision to launch a clear version of Pepsi on a focus group of like 12 teenagers. <laughs> 
assuming that was the right sample <laughs> right to determine oh we're gonna make a clear version of pepsi 12 people it's something like who I, okayed that i don't know sample sizes are kind of what they need to be at the moment in time perhaps so do you have 100 people yet no we don't we have a couple of thousand people that have inputted on our platform directly. And now we're going to go out and make a massive kind of paid effort to get people to share their journeys with us. So what's the approach in the startup world these days of acquisition? It's a good question. Our approach right now for acquisition is influencer marketing mm -hmm. and paid search primarily. And in the space of caregiving, it's kind of very exciting because it is largely untapped. Have you found of the folks you have recruited that they're very invested in being a part of something that can help other people like them? Yeah, I think anyone who's a patient or a caregiver is very invested. I think where we are right now is making sure we can continue that relationship. So we're a lean team. It's the two of us, but we just closed a round of funding, which you understand. I do understand. Very monumentous. And so now that we do that, we can build up our team a little bit and really work on the engagement aspect because people are looking to make meaning of what they've been through. And that is so powerful. I mean, with this episode of my show sponsored by Sweat Equity, <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Do you have any aspiration as a caregiver now, kind of drafted into this universe of a pattern you'd like to see? Like everyone's fucked and confused. We know that already. That's not yeah, data. Yeah. But any one particular thing, like where they may trust a source more than yeah, others. That's, oh, I get it. Okay. I want them to trust themselves and each other. And I think it already happens. Like Facebook diagnostic groups, parents are constantly going there and sharing information. I never have to sell this to a parent. They inherently understand. My doctor friends always tell me, I went to the Facebook group to get answers. I want to see the sense of, I know something and I'm valued for it. Because the constant that I see on the other side is caregivers are constantly put down. And are invisible and that drives me batty because they are doing such hard work and have such critical insight into healthcare. Well, again, it comes down to like when you are drafted into this space, it becomes a hedge maze mm -hmm. and you don't know what direction to look and maybe you find something on Google, which is yeah. Maybe you find a nonprofit, which is probably pretty interesting if, if the right nonprofit organization, but this emergence, this like, Massive tidal emergence of peer-to-peer -peer data. Yeah. Do you believe that is the future or is that tantamount to quality of care? I think it's here. I think that it hasn't been organized because there are still people in power who like to think that there is some crazy minority of caregivers who are going to say you should drink Windex to cure <laughs> eczema. And it's so short-sighted. I mean, if you want me to be totally honest, I don't get it. So I don't, if you're asking me if it's the future, I think it's the right now. All right, as a founder, founder to founder, how the hell did you get Sleuth? It seems like someone would have had it already. Someone has Sleuth.com. We oh, have okay. hellosleuth.com. Ah, see, the workarounds. So we did the workaround. The and it was, a, it. it was a hard thing because it was so hard for us to find a name. We were Visible Health as a placeholder, which I really neither mm -hmm. of us liked. But Sleuth means a family of bears. Is it really? Yeah. And so it had the double meaning that it just felt like so appropriate. Like a flock of seagulls, but a sleuth of bears? Yeah, because it went to the mama bear, papa bear thing. I see. Very Goldilocks of you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Except I don't have Goldilocks, but yes. <laughs> Fair enough. 
<laughs> Fair enough. So this kind of goes back to like, what is advocacy? You know, yeah. It's very self-determined in terms of where you live in the space and what happened to you. The way I think about it 26 years later for me with cancer is very different than the way I thought about it when I first learned what the hell the word meant. Yeah. Do you have a sense of what that means to you? I have a very strong sense of what it means to me. I worry that it might not be the way that other people think I should do it. Mm-hmm. And I'm leaning more into what my version is, which is it really is to build sleuth. It really is to create a for-profit company and make it easier for parents to find out what their kids need, to guide them to the treatments, the specialists, the resources, and the information that they need. And I think I've been scared for so long about the for-profit thing. The metaphor I would use then is like, you know, once you're done shopping in the shit happens store, you want to help other people figure out what to do once they get there? Yeah. Yeah. I want to be the shopper's guide. When you are trying to sell something to investors, one of the most powerful things you can prove is that you are buying someone time, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that about Sleuth, which is I really want to do that because I have lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in salary being a caregiver, and it's a salary that I need to do my caregiving, right? Right. If we can quantify how much time someone saves by using Sleuth, that is something that I feel is a almost mission-driven goal because moms and dads have zero time. In general. In general. When things are going well. Exactly. I mean, atypical parenting means, you know, a lack of sleep. It means there's no time or peace. Right. And I, I want to figure out a way that people can have more time and peace. Serene Noor Ali is the co-founder of Sleuth. You are so many other things, but I really want to lean into the fact that you speak five languages, sort of. Sort of, Two yes. really well, three's kind of sort of. Right. You were a digital diplomat yes. for the U.S. Department of State. You could probably kill a man seven ways from Sunday with some good army training. Uh, I don't want to learn that firsthand. And first my high hand. EQ, don't forget. And your EQ is so far off the charts, <laughs> DEFCON ain't got nothing on you. There you go. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to meet you. This has been a great show. Thank you for having me. That's all for now. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Tell us what you'd like Matthew to cover in his next episode by leaving a message for us at 855-AUDIO-66, and we might just use it in a future show. Out of Patients is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Betsy Shepard. Our host is Matthew Zachary. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Betsy Shepard. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.